0: It's great to have you here this morning. My name is John. I'm the lead pastor here at CCC. And we are wrapping up a series, as you heard Tim say, entitled, When God. And this morning, we want to talk about the subject of when God is late. And as I began to think about being late, I realized that people fall into a couple of different categories that relates to lateness. One of the first categories of individuals is you're always early, and maybe you're the kind of person that always goes wherever you have to go 10 minutes early. It's just kind of wrapped into your DNA. You don't know why. You just have to be there early all the time, and you have married someone and have children who are not wired the same way you are. It's God's uh, divine humor. Um, but the second category is individuals who are usually early and occasionally late, and these are individuals that you're generally on time, be it late, is something that troubles you, but doesn't cause you to become completely unraveled if you're a few minutes late. You, feel, you felt a little guilty if you were late on Easter and you walked in and I was already preaching, um, but you got over it fairly quickly. The third category is individuals that are usually late and occasionally early. Now, these individuals are running late most of the time, but every once in a while, lightning will strike, and um, the lights will all turn green, there will be no buggies that day, and you will arrive on time. You see, for these individuals, early is not the goal um, or intention or desire, getting there on time, but it rarely happens. And the last category is those individuals who are always late. Um, You get preoccupied, you lose track of time, you decide it's a fashionable thing to do, and you also are subtling and trolling your entire extended family because you know they will wait for you until you arrive and you are late. You're not bothered by the change of service, order, or structure. You'll proudly walk down and sit right in the front. Um, When I start to preaching preach and you married someone in the first category as well So I want to take a little take a little poll here before we get started this morning So um, how many of you in this room would say I'm always early? Let me see your hands Okay, that's about a half of what was first service. They're always early first service people, but how about I'm usually early and occasionally late? How many would say that? Okay, that's a that's a fair number. How about usually late and occasionally early? Not as many and how many of you would boldly and proudly say, I am just always late? Let me see those hands, okay? There's a few of them up there. Some of you are pushing them up. But, um, you know, it's fun to joke about being late. And uh, we all know who we are. You didn't have to think real hard to know which category you fit into. Because we all fit into one of those categories. I mean, it's fun to joke about being late when you're the one who's late. But have you ever thought of what does it feel like to be on the other side of waiting? To be on the other side of waiting. To be on the other side of being Late, it probably feels frustrating. Maybe you're a little concerned. Where are they? What's going on? You might feel angry. You might feel confused. You might feel ticked off. You might feel unimportant that you really don't matter. But what happens if you're perpetually late for a job? You're probably going to be doing what? Looking for another job. What happens if you're repeatedly late to practice as an athlete? Is the coach going to put you in for playing time? No, he's going to put you on the bench. You're going to ride the pine until you can get there on time. What happens if you're regular late at the time you told your date that you would pick her up? She's probably going to tell you, don't waste your time. The truth is, we don't have a lot of patience for people who are late. Unlike many cultures around the world, most cultures around the world are very tolerant, very patient with people being late, but not here in the culture that we live in. So what happens to us when God is late, when God is inattentive, when God is uncooperative with our prayers, with the things that we ask, the things that we plead with Him? Are we any more tolerant with God? I think we are for a time. I think we are for a season. But sometimes it depends on what we're asking God for. For instance... We're patient with God if we're asking him to help us out of a financial situation that we're in, but we may be less patient with God if we're about ready to lose our house. We're patient with God if we're asking him to help us just get through the discomfort that we're feeling, but we're probably less patient with God if our kid's life is on the line. You see, we're patient with God when we're asking for direction on how to resolve a problem at work, but we're probably less patient with God when we're asking him to bring our spouse home back to us and so the truth is even with God we're patient for a while we're patient for a season but often what happens when we ask God these things over and over and over again we can find ourselves somewhere in the midst of that journey starting to wonder does God really care about me and is God really there Over these last several weeks, we've been asking ourselves some of these very hard questions. We've been asking ourselves the question, what what do I do when God is inattentive? We looked at the story of a guy by the name of John the Baptist who had a situation that needed God's attention, and God didn't show up. And his followers were reminded to look beyond their circumstances. Then last week, we asked the question, what do I do when God is uncooperative, when God doesn't seem to want to do what I want him to do, and what I want him to do is not a bad thing. And he could do it, but he chooses not to. And what we discovered is that we can hear a yes as we experience God's grace. And today we're going to look at how we respond when God is late. When God is late. How many of you have ever had this experience? You prayed and asked God for something, and God has not done what you've asked him to do in the timing in which you wanted him to do it. Let me see your hands. Okay, Look around the room. That's most of the room there. A lot of us in the room. And so what do I do when God is late? Well, the truth is, when God is late, I believe we're going to discover something very different is happening that you might not have thought about before. If you have a Bible, if you had to turn to John 11, that's where we're going to be this morning. John 11, it's page 871, and the Bible's there in your seat, so you can follow along on your phone or on an app as well. John 11 is where we're going to be this morning. And in John 11, John's a book, a gospel, which means good news, it's a story of Jesus. John was one of the followers of Jesus, and he wrote this account about the life of Jesus. And midway through his account, in chapter 11, he tells us this story. And the story is about a man by the name of Lazarus who was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. And Bethany's not that far from the city of Jerusalem, the southern part of the land of Israel. And he lived there with his two sisters. And it goes on to say in verse 2 that Mary, his one sister... She was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. She not only humbled herself and did something that servants normally did. It was a servant that would wash your feet. And so she humbled herself and did that. But she poured this very expensive perfume, demonstrating her love and devotion for Jesus on his feet. And then she used her hair to dry his feet. And it was a humble act of worship picturing how much Jesus meant to her. Goes on to say in verse three that the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love, is sick. And that phrase is significant because up to this point in time, there have been no rec- no acknowledgement of Jesus having a personal connection, a personal love for an individual. Earlier in John's letter, he had written, "God so loved the world, everybody that's ever lived." But it's the first time it says Jesus loved an individual. First time. And it shows the relationship that existed there. So what would you do if one of your close friends you heard was really sick? What would you do? Well, you might call them or today you might text them say, How you doing? How you feeling today? I heard, you, heard this was going on. Um, that might be something you would do. You might bring them a meal. You might take them some chicken soup. You might do something that would meet a need. Maybe they had something that needed done that you could step in and do. Jesus had developed quite a reputation of healing the sick. Of taking care of people. And so one would assume that when you would, if he would hear about someone that was close to him, like Lazarus was, that Jesus would drop what he was doing, say, I'll be right over, but something very different happened. Because when he got word about this event, he said this. He said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So that God's Son Maybe glorify through it. And what, Je- what Jesus does is Jesus creates another category for us. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm sick, I'm usually like, okay, God, help me to get better. That's what I want. I want to get over this and move on. I want to get over it. I rarely, if ever, think, okay, God, how are you going to get glory? How are you going to get honor and praise through this sickness that I'm going through? I just don't think about that. But Jesus said, sometimes these occur so that God gets glory and honor And recognition through it all. John, as he's writing this, goes on to tell us a little bit more about the relationship with the family. In verse 5, he says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So now he says it again about Lazarus. Now he expands it to the two sisters. You're like, why would he tell us this? Why would he say all of this? Why would he describe how close of a relationship he had with this family, closer than anyone else that he knew, any other relationship that he ascribes when he writes about them? Why would he tell us this? Well, I think because of what he does in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He stayed where he was two more days. So you think, wait a minute. This is the family that John just recorded for us, that that Lazarus was the one he loved, and then he loves his two sisters, and he doesn't say that about anybody else, and one of them's sick, and they need Jesus, and Jesus can and is able, and has demonstrated the capacity to heal many, many people and Then he says, "I'm not going, I'm not going. Put yourself in Mary and Martha's shoes; they knew about Jesus, they likely had seen the miracles of jesus they they likely said to." Um, Lazarus, Lazarus, he's going to be coming I I know he's going to come and you know he can heal people We've seen him, we watched him do it, it's amazing He's coming He's coming Just be patient, he's coming He's done this for many, many people And it won't be long But he waits for two days And then after those two days He says, okay, now it's time to go And as he says, it's time to go, he says to the disciples, okay, let's go, guys. Let's go down to Judea. But the disciples are like, "Uh, Rabbi, hold on, time out a second, time out a second. Last time we went, they were trying to capture you and stone you. And if they're throwing stones at you, you know, we walk with you and we walk next to you and behind you and in front of you, we're probably going to get hit by those stones. And if they don't do that, they probably will not only capture you, but likely all of your followers. And so I'm not sure that's a risk that I want to take, or maybe you should take. Jesus then kind of goes a different track that they're a bit confused by, and it seems a bit confusing, because they're talking about Lazarus being sick, and then the disciples are worried that they're going to get stoned, and then he goes down this rabbit trail. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. When a person walks at night, that they stumble, for they have no light? You're like, what in the world? He's talking about light and darkness and seeing and stumbling and daylight. I thought we were talking about Lazarus and him being sick and us going to help him, and you didn't want to help him, and now you do, but it's kind of dangerous. What's Jesus talking about? Well, one of the statements Jesus had made earlier to the disciples is he was describing himself, and he said, I am the light of the world. And he goes on to say, there's a window of time where the light is here, And if you are in that window of time, you'll be able to see where you're going. But there's a window of time, and he's using the 24-hour period, where it's dark and you can't see where you're going. And I think what Jesus was suggesting to his disciples is that there was a window of time that he was going to be here. And he knew that window of time was slowly coming to a close. And he said, guys, you can choose to follow me right now. You can choose to be with me right now and you will see where you're going. You'll know what following me is like. You'll know what a relationship with God is like. You actually will get to know the Father by getting to know me. Or you can wait until the... I'm gone and the light is out. And then you won't see and know where to go at all. You say, why didn't Jesus just say that? Because sometimes Jesus spoke in parables or figures of speech because he wanted his followers to know something he didn't want everybody else to know. To know. At the end of this, he goes back to Lazarus. He said, Guys, Lazarus, my friend has fallen asleep, but we're going to wake him. And the disciples, they didn't quite know what was going on. By this time, I imagine they were very confused. Because they get, the, they get the plea for Lazarus for Jesus to come and help Lazarus, and Jesus healed all these people. Come on, let's go. It seems obvious we go. And Jesus is like, No, we're going to wait. And they're like, Wait, why is he waiting? Why is he waiting? And then, nope, now it's time to go. But do you remember what they said last time? They're going to stone us. And by the way, you need to follow me while the light, while I'm still here. And then they think, well, Lazarus should sleep. Then he'll get better. That makes sense, right? Get some extra sleep. And Jesus said, His disciples thought he meant natural sleep, so they told him plainly, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. And then he goes on to make this statement in verse 15. He says, And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. I'm glad I wasn't there. Think about that statement for just a moment. Because if you have someone who's suffering, if you have a good friend, a really, really close friend, who's going through a very hard time, and you can't get there with him, what do you often say to them? I wish I was what? With you. I wish I was there. I'm sorry I can't be there. I can't get there now, but maybe I'll get there. That's what we say, right? But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm glad I wasn't there. And then he uses this little word, so that, which always points to a purpose. Why is Jesus glad he wasn't there? So that you might, what? Believe. Jesus is starting to crack the door open for his followers, for his disciples, that there's something else going on behind the scenes that they can't quite fully see. There's something else happening that they don't fully recognize, that they don't understand. There's a bigger story being written, and and their lives are happening in this moment in time, this little slice, and they're trying to make sense. Well, this and this, that that doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says, there's something bigger going on than just, we're going to get stoned, and Lazarus is sick. He said, but now it's time to go. It's now it's time to go. And so they head down to Bethany where he lived. And as they're going, one of the other disciples, Thomas, speaks. And as you read these words of Thomas, I want you to envision Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh, okay? That's what I want you to envision. Let us all go that we may just die with him. You know, Eeyore's not real. Thomas is not real thrilled about this, and we don't really know why he includes this. It's because of another statement that's going to come a little bit later. But. So the disciples are all confused, and Thomas just says, Well, we're going to die, so we might as well all go die with him, you know. That's just the way life goes. So as they head down there to Bethany, they found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. He had been in the tomb for four days. And this four-day window is very significant. because Part of the Jewish culture was that they believed that when someone was buried and they were in the tomb, for the first three days, day one, two, and three, that there was a spirit that hovered over them in case that individual would come back to life, in case that individual would rise from the dead. But after the third day, after the third day, the face of the individual would start to decay. And after the third day, that face would start to decay, and the spirit that was hovering over them would leave. And so by the time he got to the fourth day, there was no hope. By the time he got to the fourth day, there was no hope. So after four days, all hope is gone. And as Jesus goes down, he encounters two sisters, Martha and Mary. And as he encounters these two sisters, what he hears from them is the exact same question. He hears, first of all, from Martha. And Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha's frustrated with Jesus. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Why were you so late but Martha approaches life first of all in her mind first of all with her thoughts and so cognitively she knows that something could happen in spite of her frustration with God with Jesus she knows something could have happened so she says God will give you what you want Jesus said to her your brother will rise again and Martha's like I know that Jesus I already know that. I know there's going to come a time in the end of time. They talked about that with the prophets. When all the dead will rise and be united with I know that's going to happen. Martha's up here. She's engaging up here. She's wrestling cognitively with the stuff that's going on. Jesus then says this to her. He says, I am the resurrection And the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked her this question Do you do you believe? Do you believe? Even though I didn't do what you wanted in the time and manner you wanted, can you still believe that I am the one who controls life and death? I am the one who takes life. I'm the one who gives life. Can you still believe those things? Even if I don't answer your prayers, even if I don't show up when you want me to show up, can you still believe those things? And that's a question that he keeps asking us today. No matter what our story is, no matter what our struggle, but whatever it is you're asking for God, and God's not showing up, and it feels like God is late, feels like God's making you wait. In the midst of that journey, God's still coming to you, and maybe he's coming to you today. As you're right at the edge of saying, you know, I don't really know if God cares about me. And he's saying, do you still believe? Do you still believe? I find Martha's response interesting. Because she doesn't say, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. She says this. She says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Jesus never said that anywhere in his conversation. It's true. But he never said it. never said it. And I wonder if Martha's still wrestling with all of this that has happened. What she knew to be true of Jesus, he could heal. What she experienced, he didn't heal. What she knew, God would do what he said. What she experienced, Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. And all she could grab onto at that moment in time is, I know you came from God. I know you came from God. know you came from god you see sometimes when god is late when god's not showing up people will say things to you god has a plan god's going to work this out well that may be true but i can't grab hold of that right now god's faithful that may be true i can't grab hold of it i just know he's god that's all i can grab hold of right now And i love the fact that jesus didn't say no martha Let me explain it to you again. Let's kind of roll through this again. I'm the res. He doesn't do that. He's present with her as she's mentally wrestling with these issues. He gives her truth and he lets her be okay where she is. She then walks away and gets her sister Mary. And then Mary shows up on the scene. She asks the same question. This is not uncommon for people in grief to ask the same question. She said, Lord, if you had not been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary approaches life very differently. While Martha approaches it from her mind and cognitively and from her thoughts. Mary approaches it from her heart, from her emotions, from deep within her soul. And as Jesus encounters Mary, he sees her weeping, other Jews weeping. He's deeply moved in the spirit and troubled you see, the emotions of Mary affected Jesus. That's what emotions do. We say all the time, emotions travel. And Jesus was aware of what was going on. And It's as if God was saying in this moment, I can feel your pain, I can enter your struggle. Well, I understand that there's a bigger picture here that you might not fully grasp. I can be fully present with you right now in your questions, in your heartache, I can be fully present with you right now. And that's where Jesus was. So much to the point that in the very next verse it says that he wept. And the Jews saw how much he loved Lazarus. Jesus didn't dismiss the questions Jesus didn't minimize or shove down the emotion. Jesus was fully present in the bewilderment, in the confusion, in the tension, in the frustration of all of this that was going on. And it wasn't just Mary and Martha, it was everybody around him because some of them said, could he not who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Why didn't he show up? Why didn't he come? Why was he so late? He could have done something about it. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. Jesus didn't even speak into it. He just went to the tomb. Still full of emotion. And as he went to the tomb. He said, take away the stone. But Mary, Martha said, no, no, Lord, you don't understand. He's been dead for four days. There's that statement again, almost like a little dig. He's been dead for four days. Four days, you remember four days? Four days he's been dead? And by the way, it smells really bad. I love the old King James Version translation. He stinketh, you know. Pretty smelly in there, you know. But as this is all unfolding, Jesus turns and he talks to God and he prays. He says, did I not tell you, and this is where he starts to connect the dots, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see what? The glory of God. Remember the very beginning when he said he did not go because he wanted them to see the glory of God? Now he says, you're going to get a glimpse of, of the glory of God. When I think about this idea of the glory of God, it's all throughout the Bible. It's really hard for me to wrap my mind around it. It seems so out there. It seems so out there. About the only way I can wrap my mind around it is when I see amazing things in beauty in nature. Greg referenced that this morning. And in my office, I've got a a variety of pictures of places that my family's been privileged to travel around the country. Um, And some of the pictures there, and we were working on putting them on the wall, and and our office manager, Carrie, said to me, John, you want a verse on the wall? I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. I probably should have a verse on the wall, but I didn't know what I wanted. And so I sat there as they're putting all these pictures, trying to figure out. And the verse that came to mind is Psalm 18.1. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. One of the few places that I feel like for me that I get a little glimpse, a little snapshot of this idea of God's amazing, majestic, overwhelming, staggering glory is in nature. Is in nature. But they were given a chance to get a glimpse of it in that moment, in that time. And I wonder, God... When do I get a glimpse of your glory? When do I see that? And God says sometimes in the midst of you wondering where God is, you wondering why God is late, why he's not showing up, God is a bigger story that he's writing. And then the bigger story that he's writing, he's writing it because he wants to give you a glimpse, a little snapshot of his Incredible. Glory. He goes on and he turns and says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you're always here, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. You know, I found myself wondering, why didn't Jesus just sit down with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the group and say, you know, I want to teach you something about me. I want to teach you about the fact that I came from the Father and that the Father and I are one. And if you believe in me, just like um, if you believe in me, then you'll have this amazing relationship. Why didn't Jesus just do that? He actually had over and over and over and over again. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And so what Jesus had to do is he had to give them a real life experience. He had to give them something that they would never forget so that they would experience God being laid in the process, get a glimpse of his amazing glory. He called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, get out here. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet were wrapped. He had to tell him to go take the grave clothes off because he smelled so bad they didn't want to get near him. And many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, believed in Him. They saw it, and they believed. They didn't hear it, they didn't think about it, they saw it, and they believed in Him. You know, Jesus could have come right away, healed Lazarus, moved on to the next person, and said, by the way, let me tell you who I am and why I came. But He didn't. He chose to be late. He chose to wait. And in the process of waiting, give them a glimpse of believing. And in the process of believing, give them a glimpse of the glory of God. For many of us, we know God can. And we know that sometimes he chooses to wait. The question is, what do I do when God says wait? Because I don't know about you, but I want a glimpse of God's glory. But I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. And I think this story points out a couple of things for us. I think it points out a few things. I think the first thing it says is when God is late, we can rest in the truth that you're part of a bigger story that's unfolding. You see, the disciples didn't really know what was going on. They were asking all these crazy, weird questions and making these weird statements because they didn't know the whole story. And I don't know the whole story. You don't know the whole story. We don't know the whole story. But God says, will you rest in the fact that there's a bigger story unfolding? I've seen this happen in, my, in the life of Christine, my wife's mom and dad. Um, her dad, after he went through Bible college and seminary, went to Quebec, Canada. And he went to Quebec, Canada, and his plans were to go to France to be a missionary. Very intelligent man, he could read the language, he could write the language, but he couldn't hear the tonal inflections, and so he couldn't learn to speak French. And so God had to give his life a 90 degree angle and take him away what he thought was God's calling in his life. He spent three years, and for much of the years that I knew him, as I was part of, the, became part of the family, he wrestled with and agonized, why did God send me for there for three years? seems like a wasted three years that I was there. I could have been doing something for God, but I spent three years. Why did, I, why did that happen? For years and years and years I would hear this. They came back to the States, ministered in a couple places in the States, ended up back in Canada, serving in Prince Edward Island, Canada, for a number of years as well. As they got to retirement age and they began to explore retirement, it was very difficult for them because missionaries for many years, the organizations that assist them, had not helped them plan for retirement. And so many missionaries did not have much money at all to live off of. And as they began to explore this, they discovered that if you work in Canada for 20 years, even though he's a U.S. citizen, he worked in Canada for 20 years, you would qualify for Canadian Social Security as well as U.S. Social Security. And he was counting up the years that he worked there in Prince Edward Island. It was 17 years. And then he counted up the years that he had served in Quebec. That was three years. And he realized that God was planning to provide for him in this season of his life. Nearly 40 years earlier. And he had no idea that was happening. You see, God's writing this story, this massive story, this amazing story. And the moment in time we are is just this little snapshot right here. And God says, when I'm late, can you rest in the fact that there's a bigger story that's unfolding? He then goes on to say, can you be honest with your thoughts and feelings? And I think this is what's happening with Mary and Martha. You see, Mary, Martha is wrestling with what's going on in her mind. She can't quite sort it out, but she talks it out with Jesus. Mary feels it first, and so she's emotional, and it shows up and it affects other people and eventually affects Jesus. And so when God is late, he says, Can you bring your mind, can you bring your heart fully to me? to me. And if you're wrestling with these questions, make sure you talk with a small group leader, or one of our pastors. We won't try to answer your questions for you. But I'll try to sit with you and be present and hear the wrestlings that are happening with you. And the last thing is the hope that God is going to do something amazing in and through your life. Hope that God is going to do something in and amazing in and through your life. I hope that when God is late You don't give up hope. You don't give up hope. Because sometimes God has a bigger plan that he's writing. And sometimes God will give you a glimpse of his amazing glory that could never show up if he gave you what you want right in that moment when you wanted it. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? God, you know each one of our stories here this morning. You know those of us that are sitting here waiting for you to do something. Um, you know those that have been praying some daily faithfully saying, God, this is the longing of my heart and it's a good longing. It's what the Bible says I should pray. It's what others affirm I should pray. And I just wonder if it's worth even continuing to pray. God, some might not be at that place at this moment in time, but you have a spouse, a child, family member, someone in your small group. And when I talk about when God is late, they came flooding to your mind. And would you pray that they would not give up hope today? Would you pray that they would be able to be honest with God and um, they would find rest that he's doing something amazing? Lord, I don't think there's a person in this room, a person who's on some kind of faith journey that doesn't say it would be pretty amazing to get a glimpse of your glory. For you to show up, God. For you to rescue. For you to save. For you to save the day. Unfortunately, God, I want you to do that right now. So give me what I need to wait for you and hope in you today. In your name. Amen.
1: Let's all stand as we close today. This soul once torn and beaten Left without reason to move on on. Then you reached down and brought me Up from the valley of dry bones God that saves. You are the one who rescues me, and you rescue me. Oh, you are the God that saves, and you call me from the grave, and you rescue me. Oh the song of victory ring over me. I hear the song, I sing the song of victory. the one who rescues me and you rescue me for coming this morning. As you go out this week, remember, when God is late, patiently hope to see his glory. So have a great week. See you next week.